We are in chapters 29 and 30. And last week, we left Jacob. He had just gotten up off the ground. He had his vision of the, of the staircase or the ladder with the angels heading up and down the ladder. And, and he gets up and he erects this stone and, and off he goes. As I was studying this, I just thought, you know, these next couple of chapters are so dysfunctional. I, I'm amazed that we're redeemed at all. I just, as you read through this, you just think, that's not a family tree, that is a weed. And, and as, the more we read about it, the more you go, if it weren't for the hand of God, uh, you, can, you can be sure we would not be here with smiles on our faces, seeing what God is doing. You just wouldn't. And, and so part of what I had to do is, you know, I, I went out online, I said, you know what, I need a, I need a story. I need a story about just dysfunctional families, and they got to be out there. And so I typed in dysfunctional families. I spelled it incorrectly, so it helped me. And I started reading these blogs. But one of the first links was the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. And so this is a great idea. All of us should do this because it will help us normalize suffering. <clears throat> dysfunctional family bingo. This is the best. And so it has all of these things on here, like, like uh, a spouse goes, leaves you when your family comes, a spouse just goes off and leaves you, or, or an, older relative, uh, an older relative grabs a remote control and, and wa- starts watching the trilogy of the Godfather in front of all the school children, school-age children. I mean, it's just one thing after another about this person's family and all the crazy, stupid stuff that her family, catch how I'm, I'm putting emphasis in very specific places, all the crazy, stupid stuff that her family does, all the dysfunction. And so as, as this is over Christmas and Thanksgiving, and so as one of them, they always do it. Every time these people come to visit, they do the same thing. And so she just goes into her little room and marks it off. I almost got a bingo. And then she goes back downstairs, and there it is. There's Aunt Sue outside going, the gutters are full of garbage again. She runs back up. Got that one. I'm so close, I got the free space. I'm going to make it. I thought, how funny is that? And so I'm going to make my own. Um, because, you know, I, I, I have a dysfunction. My extended family, of course. Uh, is quite dysfunctional. <clears throat> and, so, and so I'm going to make my own dysfunctional family bingo because I just thought that was hilarious. And, and if, we, if I were to actually refill that out for the dysfunctional family for Jacob, I'd have to use two different cards. Um, it's just, it, as we start today walking through this soap opera of how the nations of Israel were, were begun, um, I think you're going to get a kick out of it. But one of the things I saw that maybe wasn't so funny is I was looking through the blogs, and that bug is going to bother me. I was looking through the, the blogs, and, and one of the things I noted without, didn't have to go too far, was that dysfunction is always their fault. I didn't read one thing that said, I cause a great deal of dysfunction in my family. Now, maybe it's just that I caused the dysfunction in my family, and so it was really obvious to me. But not one of them stopped and said, if I would have done this differently, this entire thread of dysfunction wouldn't be there. Nobody said that. 
And so I started, I just kind of sat back and contemplated that and thought, how many different things in this story, in my life, if I would have just stopped them, would that a dysfunction stopped moving forward? Just a question. So we have Jacob. Jacob is now on his way. He gets up. He put the stone there. He anointed it with oil. God had called him. God had reminded him that this promise was for him, that he was going to give him the land that he was lying on. His, his descendants were going to be as numerous as the, the sand on the seashore, which presupposed that he has a wife, which he doesn't have yet. And he's going to be brought back to the land. That's where we end him. And, and he gets up and, and he worships the Lord the best way he knows how. And he, he heads back off on his journey. He starts heading north. And eventually he comes to, to Laban's family, where he's headed. And he sees a bunch of shepherds that he just assumes are lazy. And when he gets there, he starts talking to them and asking them, so do you know Laban? Do you know Laban? And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 28. Didn't have it marked. Excuse me, I also just lied to you. Let's try 29. Verse 2, And he looked and he saw a well in a field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place. Over the mouth of the well. Jacob said, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He was pretty excited about that because that's where he's headed. He didn't have a GPS at the time. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Naor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, wait a minute. It's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So here we go. He gets there. He's he's there. And Rachel comes up. And the first thing out of his mouth is telling these shepherds, what to do. And so we have to read that as kind of continuing the character sketch of Jacob. Okay? He, he's just, he gets in there and just starts throwing his weight around. He doesn't even know these people. And they correct him and tell him, you know what? Um, shut up. That's what they say. We, we can't do this until after everybody shows up. And once they all show up, then we're going to take the, the rock off of there. Well, he gets, oh, here comes Rachel. And she's good looking and and I, I want to impress her. And so he goes over and he takes the rock and whoa, he moves the rock from the well all by himself and then waters her sheep. She doesn't even know who this guy is yet. No idea. He waters all of her sheep and then he goes over. You're not going to believe this. Now, this poor little girl is kind of wondering what this guy is doing. This burly just moved the big stone and 
goes over and kisses her, and then starts crying. Now, we're just going to start this just by saying, this is kind of a chick flick, okay? We're, we've already set up the, okay, we have this strange guy that shows up, and I'm sure his shirt was torn right about here. And, and he's, you know, okay, never mind. Moves the rock. And so she tells, she, she hears who this guy is, and he does just like Rebecca, and runs home and tells Laban, I found this guy. He's, he's Rebecca's son. And they get all excited, and Laban comes running out, just like last time. What does Laban remember? The camels, the gold, the money. He's just so excited. I finally get rid of these daughters, and I'm going to get rich. He was, he's all excited. So he comes over, and he, he sees this ragtag guy and no camels. So he stays with them. Um, <clears throat> what's his name again? Jacob. Jacob stays there with Laban for a month. He's telling him all the different things that have gone on. He tells him about Bethel. He tells him about Isaac. He tells him why he's there and he's not at home. He tells him all these stories. And Laban says, okay, you're one of mine. Now, what did that actually mean? That mean, uh, okay, darn you're one of mine? Or was it, all right, you're one of mine. You can stay here now. Don't know. It doesn't really tell us. But after a month of working, Laban comes up and says, you know what? Just because you're my relative doesn't mean I shouldn't pay you for working. Who said anything about working? Wait. Nope. Nobody offered to work. Nobody. Jacob is just hanging out here. Now, this goes back and forth. Some of the commentators will say, you know what, he'd been working hard for a month, and, and Laban was just saying, you know what, I need to pay you. But then some others say, there's no mention of Jacob doing anything here but hanging around looking at Rachel. And, and so this was Laban's way of saying, you know what, um, let's talk about how you're going to earn that goat meat that you're eating. Let, let's talk about that, and, and we're going to put you to work. And so... Jacob then says, well, you got, this, you got this daughter. And I will work for you for seven years if you let me marry this girl, Rachel. And Laban tells him, well, you know what? Better I give her to you than somebody else. How's that for a response? Dads, when you're ready to give your hand, the hand of your daughter to somebody, can you imagine saying, ah, well, I guess you'll do. Better than somebody else, I guess. At least we're related. Can you imagine that response? Well, that's how he responds. That's how he responds. He never actually says, yes, I will give you Rachel. He just says, oh, better I give her to you than to somebody else. And so seven years, Jacob starts to work and work and work. And then it happens. It's time. His seven years is up. And he goes to Laban very forcefully because Laban must have been holding back. And he goes to, to Laban and he says, give me my wife. Okay, that was emphasis. I added that. But, but there is emphasis in the passage. Give me my wife, he says. He doesn't go and say, hey, our, our seven years are up. Um, that's, it's time to, for me to get married. Well, Laban responds and, and 
sets up the feast. And at the end of the feast, Jacob is in his tent and and Laban brings the bride. The bride is all veiled. And Laban is a little, excuse me, Jacob, it doesn't say this, but I just have to assume he's been partying. And what's about to happen, as far as I'm concerned, presupposes that this man had some party in him. He, he was a little up on spirits. I'm just going to assume that. Brings the wife, presents the wife to Laban, presents um, Zilpah, the, her handmaiden. But, I said Laban, but when Jacob wakes up in the morning, what does he find out? Could you just imagine this? I mean, this, you can't even get this on television, okay? You, this, he wakes up in the morning. This is like, okay, I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard about it. The Hangover movie, where the guy wakes up, I think, in the morning and, and ended up marrying somebody and didn't even know it. Okay, well, that's kind of what this is like. He wakes up and he looks over, and it's not Rachel. He looks over and he had married the older sister, Leah. <laughs> Laban got him. Laban got him. And, and so we, we sidetrack right here for a minute and say, okay, uh, that's not funny. Jacob gets, he's just infuriated. Because not only, not only is, did he marry somebody that he just didn't want anything to do with, but he must look like an idiot. Because everybody, we have now a week of festival. We have an entire week of festival with all these people. And the bride and groom get treated like kings and queens for a whole week. And Jacob is just sitting there. Hmm. You're kidding me. So he goes to Jacob. And he says, why have you? Let's read that. In verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you, what's that word? Deceived me. Now, think about this deception that's just happened. How, how like this one is. It was dark. He couldn't see. The birth order got switched because what Laban says right after that is, um, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Birth order got switched, dark, couldn't see, got deceived, and ended up with egg all over his face. We're catching that? There's a universal law here. Don't be deceived, Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, that also will he reap. Now, why? We gotta, why? And this is, this is a place where, in my, in my Christian life, I struggle with this concept a little bit. Because when I came to Christ, my life was supposed to be just Perfect. Right? Because isn't God like, when I, when I give my life to him, God has control over everything. And so when I come to Christ, my life should just be blessed. It should just be perfect. 
I should never get a bill. I should never get a throat ache, a headache. No one should ever backtalk me. Just whatever my will is, it should just happen because I'm charmed. Okay, when you first, okay, some of you have to admit, when you first came to Christ and you were totally ignorant of God, did that not cross your mind? And then the first time you were leveled with consequences of sin, wait a minute. Where's this God that I met at Bethel? Where's this God that said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to give you clothes and I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you back to your father. I could just see Jacob right now going, uh. But as we ended last week, we said, you know what? Salvation comes in parts. Did you know that? Salvation comes in parts. The first part is justification. That's when God calls you, you respond, you've accepted his forgiveness, you've accepted him as Lord, you've accepted what he did on the cross for you, and you are justified, you are perfect, you are righteous, you've taken Christ's righteousness on, and you will be ushered into the kingdom. That's justification. But then there's this lifelong process of of God peeling your fingers off of your love for the world. And that creates pain. Those are those consequences of sin because he's still holding on. He's still holding on tightly. I can tell you that Jacob was not at all repentant for what he had done to his brother and dad. He's kind of bumming that he's had to move over here, but now he found a beautiful lady. Everything's kind of working out for him. You know, I had this vision from God. I'm going to be the man. It's all pretty good. Not, wow, I've really done wrong and and I need to make that right and I need to ask forgiveness for those things you never see that you haven't seen any of that yet and so God is teaching him what it means what repentance really means and he uses so often just as God does with us uses the exact same situation to remind us because we don't see it when it's our life but we can see it when it happens a different way Right, King David is the same way. King David, it, he had this adulterous affair. He, had, he committed murder, all these things. And Nathan, a prophet, comes into King David and says, I got this story for you, fella. And King David says, well, go ahead. And Nathan says, there's this rich man. There's this rich man who, who went to this poor man because he had guests and he took his one and only ewe lamb and he cut it up and he, he cooked it for his friends. But the poor, he took it from the poor man and the poor man is the only one he had. This rich man had all kinds of sheep and ewes and ewe lambs. He had all of this stuff, but he didn't want to use any of those. He went over and stole one from this other person. And and what happened? What happened to David? You just feel it as you read it. He's just getting madder and madder. And he says, you just tell me who he is. And I'm going to, he's a dead man. He could see the sin in somebody else's life, but he didn't see it exactly here yet. And when Nathan said, You are that man. God used that to bring about repentance in David's life. And so, so often, we can be all kind of judgmental on other people. Even Jesus said, you know, be careful. Be careful when you judge other people because you're going to get judged by the same measure that you judged other people. And sometimes you feel that when it's coming out of your mouth and you know you're being judgmental and you go, ooh, I'm going to hold back on that one for a minute because I do not want that same rod measuring me. Because when it does, 
you're going to come up lacking. So God uses this in Jacob's life to start bringing about repentance, start showing him an attitude of repentance. And so Jacob just responds and says, Okay. Uh, some community group discussion ideas here. I have to go here, even if we don't finish. Um, this this week, <clears throat> I had some discussions about um, Hinduism and reincarnation and and the idea of karma and how it matches to this law of reaping and sowing. And, and here's what karma is. Karma is... Um, when you're born, you begin having thoughts and you begin having actions and everything has a cause and effect, okay? And it stacks up. It stacks up. You have your good karma, you have your bad karma and as we all start doing these things, this is a Hindu belief, as we all start doing this thing, it kind of creates what we know as life. It's all of these reactions to thoughts and actions which kind of create what we know as life. And if you take God out of this reaping and sowing, that's kind of what you have. You do something or think something, and there's a reaction to it, right? You reap something because you sowed something. You did something, therefore something else happened. I did something to somebody else, they suffered. But then when I started thinking, I thought, you know, the, the problem with this is, the Bible tells us that you're born with enough bad karma because in the end, in the Hindu belief, if you have enough good karma, you get to be a higher life form. You get to, something good happens and and you come back with another chance to get to the top. But if you have more bad karma, you come back as a lower life form, right? Well, the Bible teaches you're born with enough bad, quote-unquote, karma to damn you to hell forever, so what do you do with that? How do, you, how do you measure this? How do you do the cause and effect thing when you already start so far at the wrong place that you have nowhere to go? This is why when I go, wow, blessed be the poor in, heart, or the, the poor in spirit because they, you, you, if you realize that and you come to Christ for forgiveness as a believer, all of that, there is no measuring. There's no measuring. When Jacob came to faith, that instance he came to faith, he was justified. There's no, there's no measurements here, right? There's what God is doing because, and I think Pastor Dan quoted this earlier. He quoted uh, Romans 8, 28. We understand that we now fall into the hands of a loving God. And the consequences of sin don't just go up on a, a stack. They're used by God to peel us off of the world so that we're in his hands fully. God uses those things to discipline us. The entire chapter just about of Hebrews 12 tells us God uses discipline because he's disciplining us as sons. And as we look at that, that's exactly what's happening to Jacob here. Right? God is using these events in his life to bring him to repentance and to sanctify him. So some community group questions for later. Since Jacob married Leah, should he have married Rachel? Because this is exactly what he said. He goes to Laban. He says, why did you do this? And he said, look, 
finish the week with Leah, and I'll give you Rachel for another seven years of, of labor. <sighs> Fine, I'll take it. That's what he said. Now, he was already married. He was already married. And even though we see polygamy throughout the Bible, that was never blessed by God, ever. And so it was not the right thing to do. But do you feel the unfairness as soon as you... But he was, he was like tricked. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But just a question to contemplate. Since he already married Leah, should he have been done? How about this? In that whole time, where was Rachel? She like, they chain her up somewhere? Maybe. How about Leah? One little whisper, and the whole thing would have stopped. So did she do it on purpose? Did, did, did Laban, the dad, say, you messed this up, and life's going to be hard for you? Was she a victim there? I don't know. Later on, we'll see some things. Well, what happens here is a birth war begins. And we're going to start in this, and we'll, we'll not get all the way through it. We'll finish it up next week. But this is fantastic. And we, I call it a birthing war because that's really what happens. This is almost puppy milling here, okay? I mean, okay, that may not be the right way to say that. But, but I mean, it is, just, it is just rolling baby after baby after baby. And how can we pull this string? And how can we make this happen? And how can we do all these different things to just pop these sons out as fast as we can get them? So we start off with Leah. So Leah's the first wife, and he goes in, and Leah conceives. And, and it says, God saw that Leah was not loved. Right? It says hated. It says hated. But there, when we use that word hated, we look at cross-reference that it means she was not loved as much as Rachel was. And God saw that, and it says he opened her womb. So right away, principle, God is all about producing children. Okay? Meaning he controls who has children, who doesn't have children. It's not an accident. Kids are not accidents. God controls all that. They are blessings. Things happen. But children are from the Lord. Children are from the Lord. It doesn't matter how we look at that. Children are from the Lord. So God opens her womb, and she has Reuben. And she names him, look, a son. That's Reuben. That's what the name means. Look, I have, I've had a son. And the whole purpose there was, I, I have this son now. My husband's going to love me. He's going to love me. I've given him a son. He should be happy about that. Look, a son. Well, when you look in the table of nations, Reuben doesn't exist because of sin. He, he in fact, goes and sleeps with one of, of Jacob's other wives, concubines, and so he's excluded. Well, next we have Simeon. Simeon comes along, and, and his name means God hears. Because, again, Leah, she's just tormented. She's not loved. She's not paid attention to. She's tormented. God hears her, and she conceives and has Simeon. He also is not included in the nations because of some things that, that happen in uh, Genesis 7, 37, 35, 37, um, when he goes and massacres a bunch of people that we'll eventually get to. And then thirdly, along comes Levi. We're still with Leah. Leah has another child. His name, they name him Levi, which stands for, it means attached. 
It means attach. So now that I've given him three sons, he will attach to me. Now, I think there's an interesting play on words here because Levi became the line of priests who then attached the people to God. I thought that was an interesting play on words. That's not why she named him that. She named him attached because the husband will now attach to me because I've given him three sons. I'm the woman. Three, that other lady over there, nothing. Three sons, he's going to be attached to me. But you know what? This lady's brokenhearted, not loved at all. And there's this great quote, um, Sophie Tolstoy. She says, this is, this is how Leah feels about being unloved. It is painful and humiliating, and some of us may feel this way. It is painful and humiliating. I'm nothing but a useless creature with morning sickness and a big belly, two rotten teeth and a bad temper, a battered sense of dignity and a love which nobody wants, which drives me insane. She's a baby factory. She's not loved, but Jacob has no problems going in and and making babies because she's just producing them right and left. But she's not loved. And so she has her next child, and you see this change in Leah, and she names her next son, Judah, which no longer has nothing, it has, no, it has nothing to do with, with Jacob at all. Judah means, I will praise God. I've given up with him. I will praise God. And we know that Judah became the kingly line. If we read in Genesis 49, we see it say that the iron scepter will never leave the line of Judah. They're the rule, they're the king's. David came from Judah. The the whole line of David came from this, I will praise God. You know who else came from Judah? Christ. This is the line that Christ came through. The scepter will never, when he meant never, he meant never. Never leave. So she had given up on, on Jacob and named him, I will praise God. Well, Rachel then, let's do one more. Rachel looks over and she's just, she's being beaten down. It's four to zero, right? This, this lady's putting out babies and I've done nothing. And so she goes to Jacob and she says, give me children. And Jacob rebukes her and says, what, who am I? Am I God? What, I, I didn't do this. You're not having children because God hasn't given you children. It has nothing to do with me. We're in uh, verse, excuse me, 30, chapter 30, verses 1 through 8 here. It's not me. And so not only does he know that God has already somehow judged Leah or judged Rachel and that she's not having children in this case, but if she keeps up with this attitude, he just fears it's going to be worse. So he rebukes her and says, no, no, I'm not in the place of God. Don't say that. So Rachel comes up with an idea. She's a smart lady. She says, okay, fine. Here's how we'll do this. I will take my maidservant, Bilhah, and give her to Jacob. And, and she can, this is a great phrase. It's an, uh, an idiom. She can give birth on my knee. That's a funny way to say. She can have a child and it will be mine. I will adopt it. Okay? So she's going to give birth on my knee. I don't know what that would actually look like. Never mind. So <clears throat> it's just an idiom. So she does that, and, and Jacob says, uh, no, excuse me, I've already, 
I've already broken the polygamy thing with two wives. I am not stepping into it. That's not what he says. He says, okay. And on he goes. So now he has three wives. So, so she's given him, Bilhah is a wife. And so he goes into her and she has the first son for Rachel. And Rachel names him Dan. And Dan means judgment. And here's what she says about him. She says, you know what? God has judged me and given me a son. Here's the implication. God has judged me and, and he must be okay with what I've done. And this is where I had my aha in this passage. I probably read that 20 times before it finally dawned on me. Wait a minute. God's not okay with this. Now, it doesn't mean God can't use it. It doesn't mean God is not going to use it. It doesn't mean that somehow this is going to catastrophize God's plan. But God is not pleased with what you've done. And then this kind of sent me way back because I started thinking, okay, I remember the time when um, we had some, a person living with us and um, they wanted to move out and move in with their boyfriend. It was a little more convenient. And, and so Don and I took them out to dinner and the boyfriend says, we're so excited. We're, we're relieved because we thought maybe that you weren't okay with what we were doing because you're religious and everything. And... Um, I don't usually get really excited, but that one sent me to a bad place. Maybe it wasn't. Too. Immediately, you had to say, "Don't, don't um, confuse grace. Don't confuse grace. Maybe not the word. Don't confuse us loving you with accepting sin. Don't go there because we are not accepting your sin at all." All right, so it's always easy to do that in somebody else's life. But then it's time as you're reading through this to go, okay, enough of the judgment thing. Let's get the stick. Put it right here and see how you measure up. And, and just go through the number of times when I have done things and said, hmm, well, the ground didn't open up and God didn't swallow me. Guess it must be okay. Guess God must be good with it. Now, you don't, you don't say that consciously, right? But, but when you do it, you, you know it was sin, kind of. But then tomorrow you wake up and the conscience is a little bit seared and, and you're, nothing's really happened. And so you start thinking, well, grace, right? And, but God didn't do anything. And that's a dangerous place to be. That is a dangerous way to view God. God hates Sin. You know, we can justify, we can name our children, we can do whatever we want and think that God is okay with it. God hates sin. But this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. I love this, even as we were singing this morning, just knowing that God is patient with me. Just what I'm about to read, I know that, that God is patient with me. I know the ground should open up and swallow me at times. I know that I, I, there are times when I just look up and just wait for, boom, 
boom, one last time, you're done. I'm going to give you over to a depraved mind because that's what you deserve. You've, you've stood in my face enough times. You've this and this and this. I'm done with you. That's what I expect. But this is the God I serve right here. This is the God who saved me. This is the God who promised to sanctify me. The same God that told Jacob, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back. This is the same God who is going to see me to the end right here. I love this. Maybe I should just read it. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as of one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill this promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the God who is slowly building me into the image of Christ. And any of us that are in Christ, this is the God who's working. He's working to see you like Christ. And he's not going to give up on you. That's that's, it doesn't matter what we do. Excuse me, let me say that a different way. We can justify our sin and think God is okay with it. No. God is patient with us. And he sees us to completion.